0: Welcome to Horn of Africa Leftist Podcast. For this episode, we will discuss the latest development in Ethiopia and Tigray region by giving historical context and political background, as there is serious social camp, social media campaign being waged with a lot of emotions and strong narrative, which can be very confusing and alarming if you don't have proper analysis. So before we start on the historical background on the conflict, I want to make the following points. As I mentioned in the uh, Black Agenda Report interview, Eritrea is being set up. TPLF is an agent of imperialism, and Washington wants Ethiopia back to being a compliant client state despite the Prime Minister Abbey being a whaling client of Washington. The latest development is also an ideological test for leftists and how disciplined people are when, big, when they are confronted with very strong emotional propaganda online. As we have seen various... Casualties of propaganda when it, when the situation in uh, Uganda with Bobby Wine, and that was a failure for people to not recognize how imperialism co opts and uh, how it operates and within Africa, just overall in its function. So a lot of uh, leftists failed to recognize Bobby Wine and his uh, co-optation by the State Department and his connection to Venezuela. Uh, entity, political, political actors who want regime change. So definitely uh, Bobby Wine and Uganda situation is a lesson learned. And this should be pretty much a lesson to, for people to apply that lesson learned. Make sure to be to have proper analysis, do a background check, verify information before jumping onto an emotional propaganda or some social media campaign. So you got to be cautious. Just like Museveni and Bobby Wine, this Abby versus TPLF, uh, it's important to highlight that Abiy, Prime Minister Abiy, is no saint. He has, as he has pro-neoliberal belief, is an Abyssinized Ottoman which is hostile to non-Abyssinian nationalism in the south. Plus, it is hostile to Eritrean revolution. Plus, the Ethiopian Defense Forces does not have a clean track record in other regions, just like Museveni. Uh, Abby, Prime Minister Abiy is a willing client leader, but certain quarters in Washington have sympathy for the opposition. In this case, just like Bobby Wine, it is TPLF. So the current power struggle between TPLF uh, and Abiy must be understood w- in, in relationship to uh, different elements in Washington. Second, when examining this Western media cover- coverage in Ethiopia, it's important to critically point out that there is an issue here. How there is a lot of attention to the current situation in Tigray versus the south in Oromia. Why Western media outlets amplify only the north, the Abyssinian base, traditional base, Tamaru, and the Tigray, and not the south. The south, such as Oromia, uh, Sadamiya, all these regions have had issues the last two years. And their actual history of genocides. Plus, the last 28 years under the previous TPLF regime, we have seen various genocide in the South, where you know we're seeing it, we've seen it in the Ogden region, we've seen it in Gambala region, we've seen it in Anuk with their community being wiped out. So there has not been so much intensity, so much focus like we're seeing uh, in what's happening in Tigray. So there is a very contradictory and consistent uh, portrayal by Western media and its, um, its focus and its, uh, there's motivation, motiva- uh, motivating factors why it chooses to amplify the TPLF. And the reason, you know, as a principal leftist, as people who are materialists, is important people to recognize whenever Western media overly hyper focus on certain situation ignores others. You have to be very careful not to go along with it, very questions, question everything. So definitely be c- uh, careful, uh, have critical eyes, make, you know, pretty much understand that what's happening in Tigray is serious and people are caught in a situation of internal power struggle and the interests of Washington, which certain circles in, in the White House have personal relationship with the TPLF uh, a ruling class in Tigray. So as a as materialists, we must examine, emphasize the role of history through the economic lens and role of ruling class, which is what in addition to that, we must examine the role of colonialism and imperialism on the latest development and also the past. So before we start, we definitely have to um, highlight the three historical experience that must be explained. First one, first point is. Uh, modern day Eritrea has very complicated, long historical experience that is hostile with both Abyssinian ruling class, whether they are from Tigray or the Amharu region, which has existed, and this experience has existed before the creation of the nation states known as Eritrea and Ethiopia, which were, which both were created after 1890. Plus, during the last 60 years since Eritrean independence struggle, armed struggle, to now, both Both the Amharu uh, region Abyssinians and also the Tigrayan uh, have both have had hostile expansionist hopes for Eritrea then and still do now. Second, internally in Ethiopia and during the Abyssinian Kingdom, there always has been centuries of back and forth power struggle between the Amharu rulers and the Tigrayan rulers. In this case, currently it's TPLF. Which is on the Tigrayan side, and the on the other side you have the Prime Minister Abiy and the Prosperity Party. Third, we definitely have to have uh, uh, explain the historical experience between TPLF versus EPLF during the thirty years' armed struggle uh, for Eritrean independence. Fourth, and we pretty much will examine the historical experience of ethiopia under the tplf regime who ruled ethiopia from 1991 to 2018 and will examine the very hostile acts very aggressive things that have happened during those time against eritrea so let's move forward let's begin ethiopia is a name is the name that was eventually given to The geographic unit created with when Abyssinia, a cluster of small kingdoms in northeast Africa, expanded in the mid 1800s by conquering independent nations in the region using firearms provided by European power, obtaining commodities such as gold, ivory, coffee, musk, hides, and skins, slaves, and land was the primary reason behind Abyssinian colonial expansion. The creation of the Empire State was financed by southern expansion, tribute along with revenue from control of the slave trade, an estimated 25,000 slaves per year in the 1800s, 1880s. Valuable ivory, coffee, exports, finance, Menelik's consolidation of power. At one time, Menelik and his wife owned 70,000 enslaved Africans, to obtain slaves and economic resources, the emerging Ethiopian state committed genocide on the people, like the Ottomos. The Oromo population was reduced from 10 million to 5 million through war, slavery, massive killing, disease, war-induced famine during the second half of the 9th century. The dreadful and annihilation of more than half of the uh, population during the conquest took away the Oromos all uh, from the Ottomos all possibilities. Of thinking about any sort of uprising. Without a doubt, the Oromos, with their le- with at least 5 million population occupying the best land, all speaking one language, could represent a tremendous force of united. The modern Ethiopian state was a continuation of the previous Afghanized racialized state, which committed genocide on indigenous peoples such as Komets, Gafets, Agaya, and sordid control over the remaining colonized people. Contemporary Ethiopia emerged as a settler state by claiming the name of an ancient and historic Ethiopia with the help of the West during the partition of Africa by European powers and justify its genocide, enslavement, colonization, and the continued subjugation of Oromos and others through the discourse of race and religion. Moving forward, so with that understanding, there is no such thing as an Ethiopian empire. Because all Oxum Empire in reference to independent kingdoms in the past, whether they uh, reside in modern-day state, Eritrea, Djibouti, East Sudan, are not what you call the Ethiopian Empire. Saying such thing as Ethiopian Empire is erasing all the independent kingdoms that that existed prior to the European penetrating the Horn of Africa. So it must be clear, you as a leftist, you as a materialist, must understand there's no such thing as an Ethiopian Empire. Because Ethiopia was created after 1890, just like there is no e- American empire because it was created, uh, you know, I mean, it's totally different what I'm trying to say. But regarding regarding uh, the Ethiopian empire, there's this idea that saying Ethiopian empire, you're pretty much going along with this mythology that there was a 3,000 3, year old uh, state, which is not true. This is false. What they have done is say the history of the modern state of Eritrea, the history of Djibouti, the history of other regions. They combine all those independent kingdoms and call it Ethiopian uh, Ethiopian Empire, which is violent, which is very uh, erasure of independent kingdoms. that had nothing to do with the Abyssinian uh, Kingdom or the people of the Amharu or Tigray people. So one of the key kingdoms that has nothing to do with the Abyssinian Tigray or anything uh, in the south of Eritrea is the Bejai Kingdom. The Benja kingdom rose at or pretty much after the Axum Empire. The Axum Empire were from 80 BC to 750 AD. It is not the Ethiopian Empire. It is not Ethiopia It has nothing to do with the Abyssinian kingdom of what you call the latest modern creation. So let's that make that clear. So after the Axum Empire, which predominantly was 75% of what is Axum Empire was inside Eritrea, it started off because of the Adulis port. And it just it was a, a city state called Adulis on the port. It expanded step by step and it turned into an empire. So the initial setup of the Oxum Empire started in the Eritrean modern day state Eritrea and it expanded into northern Tigray. So the nation states differences, but it must be emphasized that it was predominantly Eritrea. So after the collapse of the Oxum Empire, the Beja Kingdom preceded, uh, you know, the Medri Bahari, which will come later. But the, the Beja Kingdom after the Oxum Empire lasted from 750 AD to early 14th century so the Beja kingdom started in 750 AD so with the collapse of the Aksumite empire the Beja established six independent kingdoms encompassing eastern Sudan all of present-day Eritrea with the exception of Nankala combining agriculture with mining the Beja developed a prosperous com- confederacy so after the collapse so the Beja kingdom have nothing to do with the Abyssinia, has nothing to do with the Ethiopian empire. This, this is all mythology. The Ethiopian empire is a mythology. But the Beja kingdom, the Aksum empire are totally different. They just happened after the collapse of the Aksum empire. There was a different kingdom, the Beja kingdom. So after the Beja kingdom, we saw the rise of Midri Bahari. The Midri Bahari kingdom was established in 11, uh, 1137 and it was first mentioned in 1450. So, an important pre-colonial historical event in modern-day Eritrea is the rise of a kingdom called Midri Bahri. After the 14th century, modern-day state known as Eritrea came to be known as Midri Bahri, which means "land of the sea." Midri Bahri was ruled by Bahrengis. Dabra uh, was pretty much the capital of this kingdom. The Bahri was, independent elect, uh, was independently elected to power by the people of Midribahari in its boundary with Abyssinia, which is currently Tigray and Amharu. And the boundaries were marked by the Mirrib r- uh, River. Uh, it is pretty much uh, situated in the highlands of Eritrea. The area was an entrance to the interior and gateway to the coastal region. Thus, because of its location, the people of Midribahari had it f- to fend off invasion by the Turks, Egyptians, and Ibsi- Abyssinians. From the south, the Abyssinians include the Tigrayans and the Amharu region. So moving forward, from the late 1400s to the late 1600s, the kingdom of Abyssinia, later later, you know, as officially to be known, uh, converted to Ethiopia, would repeatedly invade, destroy, and pillage much of the Midri Bahri territory, which is modern-day Eritrea. These repeated invasions were often quickly repulsed by the citizens of Midri Bahri, but it's, some in southern Eritrea were first in line to the invasion, moved to a new location further inland. Similar, the Maraya and Menesai clans of Tigray, uh, which live in the Samhara coastal region, are the descendant of the Tigray population in coastal Tigray. They will end up assimilating with Tigray population, adopting the Tigray language and culture. So this is an incident, and it shows you that the violent nature of the Abyssinian kingdom were still ongoing. It was on, it was always a continuous struggle. The Abyssinian kingdom had a uh, a very long struggle with the uh, Medri Bahari for conquest, incursion, domination. So the modern state n- people known as Eritrea had to contend with the people uh, the modern state of the Abyssinian kingdom of what you what you call the Maharu region or Tigrai region. So Eritrea, modern state Eritrea and Ethiopia, northern Ethiopia had always had historical because of these two independent kingdoms. By the year 1517, the Ottoman Turks had occupied the whole northwest part of modern day Eritrea, extending from Massawa to the Sudan. They even conquered Medri Bahari and occupied it for almost 20 years. During this occupation, the Ottoman Turks appointed a Muslim Baja as the Bahari Nagas, and he ruled from the Gash River to Massawa on the behalf of the Ottoman Empire. After being driven out by the Midri Baha'i kingdom due to strong resistance in the later years of the 16th century, the Ottoman uh, Ottoman Empire nevertheless continued to occupy Eritrean coast for a total of 340 years. Even in those distant times, however, it is clear that the land and people of Highland Eritrea were distinct from people of Tigray, even though they spoke the same language, just as Australians, Swiss, Germans, and the German of today are very different people. These differences were made even more clear when Portuguese missionaries of the 16th century started entering the region. In the early 1500s AD, a Portuguese missionary named Francisco Alvarez reported that Tigray border with Midri Bahari was a, was a the Medirip River, which to this day shapes much of Eritrea border with Ethiopia. He, he said in his, uh, you know, in his... Francisco Francisco Alvarez makes a point about uh, where it's located. And he said that the river, the Marab River, separates the country of Bahar from that of Tigray or the Abyssinian. Francisco Alvarez continues with his description with, with this. The men of uh, Midri Bahari wear different costumes, so also the women who are married living with men. Here, the Tigray, they wear wrapped around them, dark color, woolen stuff with large fringe of the same stuff. And they do not wear on their heads like those of the Medri Bahari. So Francisco Alvarez, a traveler from Portuguese, was able to, a missionary from Portuguese, was able to make a difference between the Midri Bahari uh, kingdom and the people uh, inside Eritrea versus the Tigray and also the Portuguese the uh Maharu, what you call the Abyssinians in the south the Portuguese were so convinced of these clear distinctions between Midri Bahari and Tigray people that they published a map in 1660 that showcased Midri Bahari as being separate from not only Tigray but Abyssinia altogether a Portuguese map of 16 uh 1660 shows Midri Bahari as cover most of the three highland provinces of Eritrea and distinct from Eritrea. In 1680, Midri Bahari political process was described by the German scholar J. D. Dulov as being federal republic. This democratic republic political process was found nowhere else in the Horn and was distinct distinct to the, you know, it was pretty much different from the Abyssinian kingdom, which was very feudal, feudal. J. Ludolf, the great German scholar whose studies on the East are known all over the world, described the Medri Bahari as a federal republic. In 1770, the Scottish researcher James Bruce even gives the boundary of Tigray, which does not include uh, Medri Bahari or the modern day Eritrea. According to Bruce, the Abyssinian border with Medri Bahari was indeed the Medra River. The greatest length of Tigray is 200 miles. And the greatest breadth of 200, it's between the Mid- Midri Bahari, which reaches the river of the east and river of the west. This is James Bruce in 1860. James Bruce also reported Midri Bahari and Abyssinia were two dist- uh, distinctly separate political entity- entities who were constantly at war with each other. This shows us without a doubt that bir- uh, the uh, Midri Bahari and the kingdom and the Abyssinian kingdom were not, they had a different political process and were not the same. In the 1770, you know, this is a quote, um, in 1770, the Scottish traveler James Bruce also reported that Midri Bahari and Abyssinia were two distinct separate political uh, entities constantly at war with each other. In 1805, Henry Lee Salt, with, who was a British uh Scholar and historian of his era stated that the Midri Bahari people were allied with the Funji Empire. This is important because we know Tigray people at no time, or the Abyssinians, were allies with the Sudanese kingdom. Which shows clear differences in political allies between the Midri Bahari and the Abyssinians. The inhabitants of the Amazon-Eritrean highland are said to have clear distinct character from the rest of the Abyssinian. And seemed in some respect to be more allied with the fungi, which is reside in the neighborhood of modern Sudan. This is 1860 by the British scholar and historian Henry Salt. In 1830, Swiss mercenary by the name of Dr. Samuel Goba described the Eritrean Highland as being ruled by Bahari Negasikhin, who leads a life entirely independent of the Ross of, Tug- uh, of tigray Dr Gadat makes a clear distinction between Medri Bahari and the Abyssinians. He also shows that the the people of Medri Bahari were ruled by their own rulers and these rulers were independent of the Abyssinians altogether. The 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 uh, there's a quote from the Swiss merc, uh, mercenary the whole of this northeast coast which is Medri Bahari which is under the nom- domain of the chief of the same name is divided into 15 petty districts, each of which is governed by a perfect or rather chief of brigade who leads in his own a life entirely independent of the Abyssinians. The traveler who wishes to penetrate the interior regions of the country must obtain, usually by payment of unreasonable sum, the consent as well as the protection of this last mentioned prince. By this mean, he will be able to travel successfully the territory of these petty chiefs with more or less security. This is the quote of Samuel Gobat from 1850. Separate regional identities began to emerge in 18th century, a development accentuated by the establishment of colonial boundaries and social economic differentiation under uh, Italian rule. This views become more evident when the uh, expansionist Abyssinian ruler, Johannes, came to power. Johannes will end up uh, coming t- to power after he collaborated with the British colonial forces to allow them to pass through uh, Abyssinia or Tigray unopposed in order to defeat Tedros, who had taken British heart hostage. After the colonial British forces defeated Tedros and his troops, they rewarded Johannes for his cooperation and loyalty with a large amount of modern weapons and military training of his troops. When the British, led by R. Napier, defeated, uh territories in 1868 in Magda, they left large arms local tigray leader. He went to use these arms to defeat his rival and def- declare himself the Ethiopian Empire uh, Emperor Johannes. These advanced wepor- uh, weaponry will lead to his, his uh, to his rise. After equaling much of the Amharu region with his new acquire his newly acquired fire weapon. Johannes then turned his attention to the north of Midri River, where he sent a massive force to occupy Midri Bahri, which had been independent. What then followed was a long protracted guerrilla warfare type engagement that lasted for several years. Johannes then appointed his trusted right-hand man Ras Alula to govern Midri Bahri. During this brief, his brief occupation in Midri Bahari, Rasulullah conducted many raids that caused genocide of two, two-thirds of the Kunama and Nara people. He also pillaged the people in Karen and Sahala area, taking 7,000 to 8,000 sheep or goats, almost as many cattle and some 15,000 tailors. He excluded all local leaders in Midri Bahari from political life and attempted to confiscate 10% of the land. He was fiercely and successfully opposed by the local and, and uh, local uh, members of the Midri Bahari. According, according of the historian Richard Reed, it was the land, not the people, that was the driving strategy behind Johannes and Alula's invasion and brief occupation of Midri Bahari. British observer, observers who accompanied Alula noted in this harsh brutality when he was occupying modern-day Eritrea. When Porto passed through it, it contained a garrison of. Around, this is his quote: "When Porto passed through it, it contained a garrison of around 200 Alula soldiers who behaved with great hatred and even brutality to the Arab inhabitants. The land not the people was uh, was the underpinning approach to the Eritrean problem of successive Ethiopian regime in the mid and late 20th century. Such as this approach is evidenced in the age of Johannes and Lula, indeed." Alula's occupation of Asmara d- demonstrate part of the same strategy. This disastrous brief occupation ended after Johannes was defeated and his head decapitated by the Sudanese. Due to Yohannes' defeat, Alula understood that Tigray was not was now vulnerable to Maharu domination. In order to preserve his his short-lived Tigrayan hegemony, they enjoyed under Johannes' reign. Ras Alula then made a deal with the Italians to offer the whole of Midri Bahri to the Italians in return for an independent Tigrayan state free from Menelik's rule. Although by this point it was evident that Ras Alula had already crossed the Midri Mid, Mid River and retreated back to Tigray, which completely ended his brief occupation over Midri Bahri. Ras Alula des- desperately continued to sl- uh, solicit the Italians, confirming that they can occupy all the lands up into the Mer River, which is historically modern border between the modern uh, uh, Mirri Bahari and Abyssinia. Despite these desperate pleas made by the Tigrayan ruler, Ras Alula and Yohannes, adopted son of Megesha, the Italians sided with Medlek and acknowledged. The Amaharu, uh, Amaharu leader as the new ruler Abyssinia, although Menlik is regarded as fighting colonialism by Ethiopian scholars and others alike, it was Menelik who himself who worked alongside with the Italian colonists, going as far as stating that he himself felt Italian wished no greater desire than visiting than to visit Italy. Italy. Menlik told the Italian representative to Abyssinia, Count Antoniolini. Melech told Antoni that he loved Italy so much that he felt half Italian, had no greater wish than to go there and see it. So this is, uh, speaks to the whole point about Abyssinians really are not of Africa, or they were not that close. They're Abyssinian rulers they they saw themselves as closest to whiteness. Melech himself viewed the Italians as close allies, and at times his protector protectors. In a letter written to the to the to the, the king, Italian king, Umberto. Melech begged the king, the king of Italy to protect him from his enemies, namely Johannes. Then he assured the Italian king that his region was theirs to share. This is a letter that he sent out in 18, uh, late 1800. I beg your majesty to defend me against everyone. As I, as I don't know what European kings will say about this, let others know that this region is ours. Just like the Tigrayan ruler, leaders of Alula and Mengesha. Melek of Amharu region had asked the Italians to occupy Midri Bahari. Via anti, uh, anti there's a quote here, via anti uh, Antoli's courier. Melek informed the king of Italy that he would like the Italian soldiers to occupy Asmara in order to discourage the imperial pretension of Am- Mengesha, the son of Emperor Johannes. Thereafter, Adam God will give me the throne after many years I had the right to have. So, in this curtain struggle between the two Abyssinian factions, they always used the North. They never, uh, pretty much Eritrea. They try to use Eritrea and try to lure the Italians and so on. So they participated in the colonialism of the British and Italians and their scheme, uh, in the Horn of Africa. The Tigrayan largely Christian peasant farmers who share a common cultural and religious heritage with Ethiopia dominant Amharu ethnic group. For centuries, the Tigrayan Amharu royal houses void of, for control of the country and recognition as a legitimate defender of Asi, Abyssinian kingdom or the Ethiopian, quote unquote, I say that in quote, the Ethiopian empire that was created after 1890s. So ever since eighteen eighty-eighty-nine or eighteen ninety, the relationship between the state, the Ethiopian state that was created after Menelik, and the Tigrayan rulers has been uh pretty much hostile, with the former attempting a social control and later seeking autonomy. So you, we have to understand that the even though the Tigrayan rulers lost and Menelik uh, came to power, and Ethiopia was just pretty much in the uh, in the hands. Ethiopia was created in the image initially after Menelik was created in the image of the Maharu region, the rulers. So the, the Tigrayans were pretty much playing secondary. So while the Menelik went down south uh, to colonize and commit genocide, they also were part of that. Uh, pretty much they uh, were part of that as well. So. Um, The Abyssinians from the north had both rulers, even after Medelek, the Tigrayan rulers, had benefited from the colonialism, subjugation, enslavement of the southern population. Uh, So that must be clear. So moving forward, uh, we definitely have to have a clear understanding of the TPLF versus EPLF, the history and historical differences. So I'm just going to point out key information and then we're just going to give a brief quote. The collapse of Emperor Haile Selassie's Abyssinian regime from the Amharu political class in 1974 weakened central government control of the countryside, promoting a renewal of Tigrayan nationalism that had been dormant since the 1940s. This rebirth culminated in the formation of the TPLF in March 1975. The Tigrayan front grew slowly at first, primarily because of competition within the province from other groups on the left and right. It gradually absorbed the smaller Tigrayan forces and defeated non-Tigrayan guerrillas. So context between Tigrayan and Eritrean liberation movement developed prior to the TPLF launching its armed struggle in February 1975 or March. Tigrayan living in Eritrean's uh, in Eritrea, particularly students at the University of Asmara, and endeavored to obtain promises of assistance from the Eritrean Liberation Front, and especially the EPLF. Ultimately, however, EPLF support of TPLF depended upon acceptance of the view that Eritrea was a colony and hence had the right to secede from Ethiopia. Therefore, the, e- the TPLF sent several of its members, including the minister. Uh, Sayabra had to EPLF for military training and nine fighters returned three months later this ex- expertise provided crucial for the fledgling Tigray movement so EPLF was the reason why uh, TPLF was able to have training all types of support without EPLF this was never happened so moving forward to give you a context of what was happening on the Eritrean side and what was the difference between TPLF and EPLF and what was the tension here? So, move, so as we move forward, as Eritrean joined the armed struggle in the 1960s, all ethnic groups joined ELF and later EPLF. Both Eritrean fronts stressed that unitary character of the Eritrean nation. In contracts, as many as many Tigrayan joined the T L T L F and TPLF, which are totally different. There is a different uh, formation in the mid to ni- uh, 1970. They base their struggle on ethnic identity, and that's totally different from the Eritrean nationality that was forming because it was multi-ethnic. So it's one nationalism. There's no ethnic nationalism. It's all nine ethnic group or eight or nine unifying under the banner of Eritrean nationalism. The TPLF were trying to project themselves with an ethnic identity. At first, the TPLF also viewed their struggle as a colonial issue, which conflicted with both the ELF and EPLF political stand on Ethiopia. This political disagreement and ideology almost ignited into war due to to the 1976 TPLF Congress. In that Congress, the TPLF TPLF stated that all Tigrinian speaking people, including the people in Tigray, uh, were part of the Greater Ethiopia Independent Manifesto. This infiltrated and angered the air chain movement for independence, which viewed the Tigrayans as separate ethnicity and as a domestic issue internally within Ethiopia. That should be taken. That should be taken care of within the political framework of Ethiopia. As a result of the 1976 TPLF manifesto, all the relationship between EPLF and TPLF were suspended. So we'll move it forward. Just give you a more of a clear idea was the difference here. For the TPLF mobilization in Tigray was relatively simple, since it could call upon an existing concept of Tigrayan nationalism, a common history of oppression, and a common religion in Christianity. The TPLF activities were an attempt to end Amharu Abyssinian rule, which they—it's pretty much a continuation of their struggle, versus the Amharu's... In Tigrayan eyes, the Amharu Abyssinians had pretty much taken the traditional power base of Northern Abyssinia or Ethiopian society, which they they view themselves as the primary one and they don't view Damaharu that should be taking power. So they wanted to transfer. They didn't like that it was transferring from the ancient uh, capital of Aksum to Addis Ababa. So this is why the TPLF was focused on only Tigray in the beginning, not Ethiopia it's itself. And it was trying to struggle against the... The Maharu, the Maharu rulers who took power after uh, Melek was in power. So this is an ongoing internal struggle between two Abyssinian factions, the Maharus and the Tigrayan rulers. So in addition to that, there's a difference between EPLF uh, and uh, TPLF on many things. And one of the one of them is the position on soviet union soviet union were supporting the Derg regime who are uh pseudo Marxists. they were not really Marxists. they were not really communists. they're still they were just abyssinian who just fooled everyone and that's a different episode to go g- dive deep on how the Derg regime during that time uh during after 1970 were not really a communist regime but despite that despite this uh su- a difference uh, complication the EPLF resisted a heartland stance against the Soviet Union. So during that time, the socialist socialist bloc had initially favored Eritrean independence. And after the ELF began military operation against the regime of Hala Selassie, further uh, cementing ties with Eritrean nationalists throughout diplomatic support and indirectly through Cuban other allies in the Middle East who provided arms and training facilities. Although this was not, this was to change abruptly when the socialist bloc cast its lot with the pseudo-Marxist derg regime, then remained a residue, a resentment of, uh, uh, pretty much a sentiment in favor of Soviet Union within the EPLF or leadership that was to cause some dissent later. Sympathy was due not only to a shared affinity to Marxism and the view that Moscow's Moscow support of the Derg the, the fake Marxist group in Ethiopia was based on a policy blunder that did not reflect on the overall character of Soviet society but also because TPLF I mean uh, EPLF feared US imperialist interest in the region as well as the expectation, expectation that an independent Eritrea would take its place internationally within the Soviet dominated progressive camp so EPLF the Eritrean People's Liberation Front was in pretty much had somewhat a favorable view of the Soviet Union. It did not take a hardline stance despite the Soviet Union uh, mistakes and errors supporting the Derg regime. On the other side, uh, the TPLF, the rulers in Tigray, held very harsh views of the Soviet Union and they called them social imperialists and argue that along with the DERG, it should be singled out as a principal enemy, rather than Washington, against whom a broad alliance should be formed. According to the Meles Zinawe, the chairman of TPLF, the main dividing points between EPLF and TPLF was the main issue of the Soviet Union. The TPLF would later admire Albania and uh, Enver Hoxha. So to quote the Liberation News article, The Life of Meles Zanawe, Good for Imperialism, Bad for Ethiopia. Uh, it's on the LiberationNews.org website, and it's really a great article. But there were some errors about the DERG. Uh, I'm correct there, but uh, just taking this quote from him, I think it was really useful. The TPLF ruling Zanawe, Meles Zanawe uh, regime had several seemingly con- contradictory political identities. Tigrayan, he was a Tigrayan nationalist. Mele before we start, uh, anybody who's not aware, TPLF, uh, the chairman was Mele He died in 2012. But this article examined uh, his life and the contribution of TPLF. And, the, uh, and this article is from liberationnews.org. So to just give you a highlight of what it said, the TPLF ruling, uh, Zenawe has several uh, seemingly contradictory political identities. Tigrayan nationalist, first capitalist reformer and later on he switched to becoming an Ethiopian nationalist to becoming an alliance to pretty much forming an alliance with the Amhara Abyssinian base to fight and invade Eritrea from 1998 to 2000 but earlier the TPLF war uh, they had during the 80s they were really deeply into Enver Hoja and I would definitely want to explain the, how bankrupt the uh, Anybody who really reads Enver Hoja, I I have to say, you know, Enver Hoja and the whole ideological background of Hoja, Hojoism or whatever you want to call it, it is racist, divisive, and anti-third world ideologically that is worthless and pointless. And it speaks to how the TPLF, blind arrogance, ideological incompetence, Of the chairman and the dplf for choosing to center the albania ideological line of enver hoja first they were anti-soviet now they choose the most backward ideological uh line that is the enver hoja which is in contradiction to what uh enver hoja believes in he's anti-third world he's anti everything he's racist so they really are not aligned. They don't understand. They're just choosing to just center somebody because they don't like the Soviet Union. So that's something that must be clear before before we move on. Definitely we um, have to examine and give a few points on Enver Hoxha, why it's bankrupt. So let's start. I think uh, it must be clear that, you know, just give you a clear view and a clear overview of Albania. Albania were adamant they were not slobs. Hoxha, you know, initially had meeting with Stalin to, you know, to explain why Albanians were not Slavs. So afterwards, Yugoslavia were the first socialist countries to cut ties with the USSR because of the situation after Stalin uh, took power. I mean, the Stalin passed away and there was a lot of quote unquote revisionism and efforts to stamp out his ideas and to suspect him. So the Tito-Stalin split after 1948, which did not help as well. Uh, Tito aligned with the U.S. and was against China, U.S.S.R. And Albania does, does the opposite as they love Stalin. So they went with the uh, Soviet Union. The, and then after that, Korch, Korchov gets in power, right? And then U.S. and the and U.S.S.R. and denounces Stalin. And begs Tito to join the US, USSR. The Soviet-Sino split happened as well. China, uh, China accuses the Soviet Union of revisionism and abandoning the Lenin-Stalin line. So Albania is the only country that sided with China on the Soviet-Sino uh, Sino split. Uh, no Korea, Cuba are neutral. So Korchov tried to overthrow them and cut diplomatic ties. Uh, since they were since China and Albania were aligned from there, Albania is heavily divided between Christians and Muslim, but but later declared themselves atheists, the only atheist countries in the world uh, when attempting to do the same thing as the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which is dumb. And re- it was pointless. Albania. I'm not saying the Chinese Cultural Revolution. I'm talking about the Hoja Enver Hoja was an idiot. Uh, Albania cut ties with China in 1978, and later on, Enver Hoxha denounces Mao as counter-revolutionary after the Deng Deng uh, reforms. So, so it just shows you the uh, the timeline of how uh, there's a lot of inconsistency of Enver Hoxha and anybody that's aligned with him is an idiot, is reactionary, and does not know what they're talking about. Uh, on the two-state revolution in the Third World, Hoja advocates skipping over the stage of democratic revolutions and cope with this with a anti-peasant stance. He complains about Mao's reliance on the peasantry as a main force in the Chinese revolution, as opposed to the real leading role of the masses. And then, in 1974, two years before Mao's death, uh, Hoja writes. Mao is the great and beloved leader, not only of the Chinese people and communists, but also the dear and respected uh, leader of all the peoples and communist world. So Hoxha waits like until uh, Mao dies to attack the three world theory as the part of the labor's 7th Congress. But Hoxha did not let the mask drop completely another section of the Congress report. So pretty much he... Once Mao dies, he just flips on him and just buries him and just try to uh, erase everything that Mao has done. And he does it in a dishonest way. So moving forward, I think that's just to clear. I just wanted to give you an idea that the, the PLF choosing to uh, center themselves in this ideological line shows you that they're, they were anti-Soviet. They were into an ideological line that was anti-Mao, and later on, uh, the Soviet Union is is very inconsistent, and Enver Enver Hoja was very bankrupt, morally bankrupt, intellectually bankrupt, and also, it just shows you that, you know, at that time, the TPLF did not know what they were talking about. The TPLF, despite its claim of fighting for oppressed nationalities, is actually in a power struggle, obviously, I just mentioned earlier. With Adisawa and pretty much did not fight. This, so did not fight uh, outside of Tigray in 1989. So I'm just rewinding back to 1989, uh, 1989. like uh, it's to highlight that the fact that the TPLF, there's this image of them or the image they portray that they fought for the oppressed nationalities. That's not true. In 1989, uh, when the when those fighting under the banner of EPRDF outside of Tigray began deserting the battlefield and returning home war worried. They complained that their objective has been achieved with the liberation of Tigray, that it was up to their other peoples in Ethiopia to free their own territories, a view that had wide support in Tigray. So this idea that Tigray or TPLF were, uh, defenders of the press nation- nationalities is not true. I'd recommend anybody to rewind back to 1989 but key key points also happened in february 1989 EPLF support contributed to the victor, victory of the e- TPLF in the battle of Shiri and Tigray and captured the whole Tigray province effectively blocking land access from Ethiopia's central e- uh, Eritrea EPLF being the senior partner helped capture Addis Ababa in 1991 so without EPLF the senior partner TPLF would not have been power. So, EPLF put TPLF in power. So, moving forward, so after 1991 to 2018, uh, you know, Eritrea renounced its claim to uh, war reparation and trade agreements with Ethiopia were concluded in 1992. Eritrea initially continued to use the Ethiopian currency Burr, open its market to Ethiopian companies, and recognize ASAP as a free port. However, Conflict over an, a land, taxes on trade, monetary policy, and the adoption in November uh, 97 of an air chain national car- currency, the Nakfa, led to the further tension between two neighbors, which led to war being declared uh, by the TPLF regime in Addis Ababa, Addis Ababa by Meles Zanawi. Before we start, definitely hi- I wanna highlight this key point about how the TPLF under Meles Zanawi had very expansionist view over Eritrea territory and its sovereignty. For example, the German government aid agency, the GTZ operated in three regions of Ethiopia. In early 1997, the regional education board of Tigray approached the GTZ. They were asked to help fund the printing of a new map of Tigray for distribution to primary school. GTC agreed and pr- printed a thousand maps with with its logo on the, on the bottom, the map turned out to be deeply controversial, for it pretty much portrayed the border with Eritrea in completely new light. Sober areas that had been subject of the heated discussion between, between the two countries were now shown as being part of Tigray. For the Eritreans, this was proof positive of the hostile intention of the Tigrayans. And it was the Tigrayan regional authority that undertook the printing. The Air Trans believe that this could not have taken place without the collusion of the government of the TPLF in Addis Ababa under Meles Some interrupted as a result of the long-held TPLF dream of a greater Tigray that included that would encompass all Tigrayan speakers, as outlined in the TPLF manifesto of 1976. The German government was hard, and that they were caught up in this controversy and came up came in for considerable criticism, both in the Horn of Africa and the German parliament, where several MPs uh, supported the Airtrain cause. The GTZ GTZ insisted that all had done was to finance the project. They had no responsibility whatsoever on the map content, which which drawn up to the Ethiopian mapping uh, authority. So this is... These are two key points to make people understand that the TPLF rulers always had this objective and vision of uh, reversing Eritrean independence, gaining territory, and pretty much acquiring it. And then moving forward, after the 1998 to 2000 war, uh, the TPLF supported, supported, continued to support armed, sh- armed opposition on the border, and continued to support destabiliz- destabilization after the peace. Uh, you know, even after the peace deal after 2018, uh, the there was efforts to, um, you know, tell them stop supporting the uh, armed opposition and they didn't. They continue to do it. So even it began after 1998 to 2000, it just never stops sponsoring these elements, uh, opposition militias on the border who were killing air air chains and causing a lot of uh, security threat. So, in the end, in conclusion, I think uh, before we have a conclusion, I want to make this point. While there is an internal uh, issue in in Ethiopia between uh, TPLF versus uh, Abbey, you know, there's an internal power struggle. The TPLF versus Prime Minister Abbey as a continuation of the Abyssinian Kingdom, tension between the Amharu region and Tigray uh, rulers. This is pretty much the case internally. That's what's happening. But the histor- this historical context that I was just given should also give you a bit of brief historical overview to highlight how Eritrea has always been a victim of, Ab- of Abyssinian rulers, ruling class, whether they were Tigrayan, like the TPLF, or the Amharu, or the or Menlek, to invade, loot, and conquer the land by Western support or sponsorship. Plus, keep in mind that Eritrea from nineteen ninety-one to ninety-eight didn't fully concede to IMF, World Bank directives, and was a bit hesitant to send troops as per Washington orders, and that caused a bit of discomfort from Washington. So the war was uh, had various factors motivated, motivation uh, motivating factor for it to be ignited by TPLF during the nineteen ninety-eight to two thousand war, in which twenty-five percent of uh, Eritrea's territory was penetrated. By the Ethiopian Defense Forces, on behalf, uh, you know, ordered by the TPLF regime, but it was mostly done by the TPLF on behalf of Washington, likely like like they invaded Somalia in two thousand six, two thousand seven. So the war on Eritrea by the TPLF is the same reason why uh, they invaded Somalia. It was an order from uh, Washington because Eritrea during the 1998, 1991 to ninety eight, did not fully uh, concede. Uh, to neoliberalism, it did not concede all the way. It was not compliant enough, and that you know that was a lot of invasion. But there was multiple historical reason why the TPLF also wanted to invade. So the TPLF, in addition to becoming uh, having this ambition of taking Eritrea, also was trying to uh, make Washington happy, and that, that's why they're a proxy client state. And they made Washington happy by executing the war on Eritrea, in which the the Ethiopian defense forces were inside of Eritrea, 25% of Eritrea and cause a lot of damage, a lot of killing and pillaging. So moving forward, the let me see, plus the latest development um, from after 18 years of military occupation of his territory with Washington backing more than nine times of incursion and attacks from 2000 to 2018 on the border and attempts and also, that put the Eritrean population in a state of war, plus how the TPLF leadership corps, with assistance from Marshton via their handlers, uh, hand uh, Suzanne Rice, Gail Smith, and other influential uh, players, sanctioned, corner and attempted to suffocate Eritrea. The Eritrean people and the oppressed, nationality, oppressed uh, nationalities in the south of the below the south of uh, the Abyssinian region of Amaharu and Tigray share the same uh, commonality of being victims of the western support and western support and aid of Abyssinian rulers who have wreaked havoc in this and their expansionist aim from the north via TPLF now and Abyssinian rulers in the 1800s then by the European colonial power then and then also men to conquer uh, the south so Eritrea and the oppressed nationalities have a lot in common. Eritrea was subjugated not by just the Derg, occupied by the Derg, not by just Halas Selassie, not by the TPLF, but all pretty much all the Abyssinian rulers, the southern population all have been subjugated, Congolized, subjugated like by all the rulers. So Eritrea and the southern population have a lot in common, not the the oppressed nationalities don't have a lot in common with the Abyssinian rulers and the TPLF who are in a struggle, in a power struggle with the uh, uh, with Abiy, Prime Minister Abiy. So m- it must be stated before we go: Eritrea is being is currently being set up to, uh, for sanction for defending itself and being portrayed as the aggressor by the imperialists, while TPLF is being portrayed as the victim or innocent when that's not true. The Tigray region needs peace and stability, but the TPLF as proxy of imperialism is a problem for the Horn of Africa, and all leftists must recognize that. And that's the reason why they have powerful backers, NGO media attention for their narrative and social media campaign. The Horn of Africa region cannot find peace and stability if we have proxy actors working on behalf of Washington, causing tension between Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, and further conflicts. Thank you.